The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! You know, and they're thinking they're original, or they're attempting, you know, this futuristic music. It just seems like if you come out with a band and you use all electronic equipment and you record digitally and you have a drum machine and 50 samples and somebody rapping or whatever it is, that all of a sudden it's cutting edge music. You know, yet all these things, electronic music was done by Kraftwerk 30 years ago, and, and uh, rap music has been around for 15 years. I think anyone that's really feels that they're doing something original is really fooling themselves. You shouldn't even want to, in one sense. One sense, you should be wanting to. Uphold the tradition of music and join the tradition of music and, and uh, respect your elders, you know, respect the people that came before you. Through this way, through this way. Okay, uh, now we have the podium set up here, and we're going to take a few questions from the press. God, it's so heavy. Okay. Well, no, yeah. You don't actually have to lift the podium. Oh. Um, yep. Yep. Oh. Okay, so we're just going to take a Should couple. I put it down? Excuse me, if everyone would just settle down, please. I'm putting down the podium. Everybody, I'm putting down the podium. Everyone just, just settle down. You're going to be able to ask all of your questions. James has arrived straight from... I'm here. I've got the podium. I want to say Manchester. Should I be putting on an accent now, should I? The accent's very bad, but he's going to do it. So, uh... Hello. Okay, all right, I'm sorry, we have our first question over here. Pop it. Uh, hello, this is, uh, Mike Nuts from KABC in, uh... 
Hello there, Mike Nuts. In Atlanta, Georgia. James, now, uh, which one of you is the funny one? Did you know that Georgia is also a country? <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you. I think I have my answer. Okay, all right. Thank you very much, Mike Nuts. Just going to move on to the next question over here. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, um, your hair is far too long, and I'm wondering when... Gear Fab. Are you planning on straightening out your appearance for the youth of America? The youth of um, America is... Oh... <laughs> Thank you for it. Oh, I was just putting on an accent. I was, I was. The youth of America can have my hair any day they want. They is, they can. And we have one last question from over here. Yes, I would just like to ask the nice boy from Liverpool if he's received the casserole I sent to him via the Queen's Express. <laughs> yeah. All right, no more questions. That was terrible. All right. Oh, it was awful. Welcome to the third man. Should I put down this podium? (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the third men podcast. I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. And I'm your co-host slash man of a million voices, James Kaminsky. Paul, good luck editing that one. Thank you. And we are a Jack White history podcast where we talk about all things Jack White and Third Man Records. And uh, we, we go through records. We Sometimes we interview rock stars. That's not today. But James... One of the things we do sometimes on this show is go into uh, who Jack White's influences were as an artist. And we've talked about Robert Johnson and we've talked about the flat duo Jets. And in this episode, James, we're going to cover the two most seminal forces of rock and roll music in its modern form, the 60s and beyond sort of form of rock and roll music. And they have admittedly been less of an influence than somebody like a Robert Johnson or a Flat Duo Jets, but they're an influence nonetheless, James. Do you know who we're talking about today? I believe we're talking about Kesha, Paul. Yep, yeah, that would be... <laughs> <laughs> really somebody who defined rock and roll in the 60s. <laughs> I believe we're talking about the British Invasion, Paul. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Yes. Two bands that have taken America by storm, and specifically rock and roll by storm. Those two bands have had a huge impact on rock and roll, and not only rock and roll, but the White Stripes and Jack White and Third Band Records. Yeah, I think part of the inspiration behind this episode was that James and I really... We don't want to scare you away with all this Beatle talk. We promise this show isn't going to evolve into our other podcast, Yesterday and Today, which is a Beatle podcast we do with our father. That's available now, streaming on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found. But I think it is worth pointing out that there are some legitimate connections to these two acts. And we've got a very special episode today, James, because you and I are going to talk about the Rolling Stones first. But to help talk about the Beatle connections to Jack White, we are going to be bringing on a very very special guest. Indeed. From the amazing Paul McCartney podcast, Take It Away, we have Mr. Ryan Brady on the show. That's right. Ryan, who does this wonderful show with his co-host, Chris Mercer, they talk about every single Paul McCartney album in chronological order and even talk about the weird stuff. And I love this show. And I had found the show and connected with Ryan. And we were so pleased that we were able to get this collaboration between our two podcasts together so that's it's sort of an extended interview really like it's a pretty it's a long one but we did want ryan on here to add that uh, that extra beetle level to things so ryan's gonna join us we're super excited about that lots to cover today james but before we get to all of that paul 
Is there something we should be smelling? You betcha. Oh. Astounding fact. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact is the knowledge. James, would you like to tell the people what I think I smell a fact is? I think I smell a fact, which is this segment, if you didn't know, uh, is, is the <laughs> segment of the show in which uh, we find out a bit of information about a previously done topic, or we do a bit of learning, or somebody teaches us something, and we don't feel like going into a full episode about it, uh, but we like to cram it into this little segment that we like to call, I think I smell a fact. Yeah, that's, James, I would say that was an expert summation. Thanks. So this, I think I smell a fact I dare say is a tad controversial. Ooh. I like controversy, Paul. If you know anything about me, it's that I love controversy. <laughs> so we asked Mick Collins in our last episode, Dirt Bomb's founder and Gory's member, musical force to be reckoned with, rock star Mick Collins, who just so happened to be on our show, uh, about somebody named E. Wolf, who is a Dirt Bomb and who has been involved in a lot of different areas of both Jack White's music and the music and creation of other Detroit acts at that time. Now, Mm -hmm. Mick, when we asked Mick who E-Wolf was, declined to disclose his name. Yes, he definitely shut us down pretty quick. Yeah, but we got a message from someone on our website, thethirdmen.wordpress.com, from somebody named T-Wolf. Ooh. who posted, pretty sure this is E-Wolf, and sent a link to Discogs, which led us to an article about someone named Eric Wheeler, who, in fact, is publicly shown to be Eric E-Wolf Wheeler. Huh. So... Do you think T-Wolf is, like, E-Wolf's great-great-great-great-grandson? I think it's either him or... A relative of him who may have listened to our show and been made aware of it through Mick Collins, or it's just an astounding coincidence. I'm going to guess coincidence, but at the same time, that is super interesting. It seems like we should have been able to find that information a little easier. Um, It's right there. Yeah, apparently, Uh, but neither one of us nor apparently any of our followers or listeners were able to figure it out either until recently. So, yeah. interesting, though, nonetheless. Unless they just didn't say anything, which is fair enough. Now, his list of credentials on this Discogs article here, he's listed as a visual artist on the 2000 Insane Clown Posse album Bizarre, hmm. the 2000 Twisted album Freak Show, and mm-hmm. the 2016 Blaze Ya Dead Homie album, Casket Factory. All of these just staples in every home video cassette. Yep, home video cassette. Collection yeah. library. I know I have a lot of Twiz Tid, spelled T-W-I-Z-T-I-D. I know his quintessential VHS cassette, Freak Show, spelled F-R-E-E-K, is no, we, uh, one of my we all Everybody has a copy of these in their library, and I think we're all familiar with Twisted and uh, whatever the other ones you said. But uh, that's super interesting. I didn't know he was also a visual, uh, visual artist. Now, here's where the plot thickens even thicklier. Love a thick plot. Another one of our listeners found even more about this fella. 
Now, this comes courtesy of one of our regular listeners who we very much appreciate. Mr. Eric Andrew Dodson over here commented in the Thinking Persons Jack White group and sent a link to uh, something called modelmayhem.com slash doswolf. Mm. And that person is credited as E-Wolf there, a male photographer living in Ferndale, Michigan. And the About Me section reads, Somewhat reclusive, but damn good photographer interested in photographing interesting people. My past work is mostly music-related, including numerous major label and independent album covers and more magazine work than I can recall off the top of my head. Recently, I've provided architectural photographs for a book on the wonderful Guardian building in Detroit. It looks like he's got some cheesecakey, glamour shoddy stuff, but he swears it's not porn. Cheesecakey glamour shot. Would you call him Cheese Wolf? <laughs> yes, he's possibly a Cheese Wolf. That is really cool, and there's there's other stuff there if you want to check it out. So I think we've kind of sort of gotten to the bottom. Is it's this Eric Wheeler fella? Eric, if you're listening, or T Wolf, if you're listening, and you know how to get a hold of Eric, hey, we want to talk to him on the show. And ask him just so many questions. Any of the Wolf family of products, if you'd like to come on the show, we would love to have you. If you'd like to answer our question as to who you are and why you do what you do. Yeah, you've got a lot to answer for. Feel free. We have many leads, but not a lot of answers. Paul, I think we briefly inhaled this fact, (laughs) uh, but we have yet to 100% smell it. We got a brief whiff of this fact. Yeah. When I reflect on that fact. All right, James, you ready to get into this episode here? I would love to, love. Oh, God. It's my first British accent. See, I I gotta put on a Liverpudlian accent. I can't do that. Well, James. All I could do is Ringo. (laughs) Yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. All you need is this podcast. <laughs> James, let's start with the Rolling Stones, shall we? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't. I you can't do, do a Mick Jagger. You accidentally did a big, a, like a decent Mick Jagger impression. Then you're like, "That's not how you do." It. Like, I love that you ran the whole gamut. You're like, blah, 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 and, and then oi, 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 and then you you were like, and then oh, I was Mick Jagger, love, and it was like perfect. And you're like, "No, that's not it. Let me move on." <laughs> Shagadelic, baby. And then I thought that Jack White would be really good because that he's really in a kind of in a rock band as we are. He's also got very bluesy roots, um, Jack. And I thought that he I, we, he played some shows with us before, so he was an unknown quantity to us. So the roots that connect Jack White and the Rolling Stones, they sort of are a little lighter in the influence department, but get a little more firm once Jack becomes famous. Mm. All of that is to say that of the influences Jack White cites, Jack doesn't really talk about 
like being influenced them a whole lot, but he definitely does mention it once or twice. I like the Stones piano. I like the piano. It's a big influence on my piano playing. And uh, when I'm writing songs, I like the way that whoever, you know, if it's, you know, Ian Stewart, you know, that's always been a heavy influence on that. And just like the, their attitude towards uh, the blues, like a lot of English bands from their time, you know, is something we totally respond to. I don't remember a time not knowing about the Rolling Stones. One of the main sources I found when researching the connections between Jack White and the Rolling Stones was via a Rolling Stone article that came out not long after the Shine a Light documentary in which Jack participated, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to in a moment. We've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, but this is via that Rolling Stone article. White did not see the Stones live until the White Stripes opened two shows for them in 2002. The first thing we thought how great it was going to be to meet Brian Jones, and then we realized we'd been misinformed. But the two guitarists, Jack and Keith, quickly bonded over their mutual love of the blues and the spontaneous joys of live performance. A quote from Jack, it's like describing the pyramids to someone who has never been there, he said when asked what he feels in the middle of a hot guitar solo. Richard says, a man after my own heart. They asked Jack, what did you learn about the Stones when you opened for them? And he said how good they were. You could see the comfort level between them in Keith's guitar playing and Ron's slide playing. It's impressive, man. When the confidence is exuded, someone once told me when I first started playing, you get a lot more respect if you act like you own the joint. If you fumble around, you don't gain respect. They then ask him, Jack, did you see the Stones films like Gimme Shelter and Ladies and Gentlemen, The Rolling Stones when you were young? To which he responded, I saw Gimme Shelter and at a house I lived in, we had a grainy copy of Cocksucker Blues. So we watched that a few times. Is there a nice copy of that movie? That's what I want to know. Keith then chimed in and said, Once we started getting into Shine a Light, I got all the Stones movies from our office. I didn't want to look at them. The only one I did watch was Sucker Blues. To which White said, I had more questions than opinions. I wanted to know where it came from, why it never got released. But I loved the mystery of the backstage, of the transportation to the gig. It's a lot worse now. It's more boring than ever. <laughs> that documentary, if any of you have never seen it, Paul included, is very, very good. I haven't. I watched it during a movie fest that I attended many times, and it has some really, really interesting footage of what touring with the Rolling Stones was really like, how destructive it was to not only everywhere they were but them as people you know you see Mick Jagger waking up from a really really big bender you know waking up first thing in the morning taking a swig of whiskey going to the piano and playing the most ludicrously good (laughs) piano that I've ever heard in my life and then like passing out on a floor like it's so bonkers it is crazy oh that's awesome there's no official copy of it so you have to really something or you might be able to find parts of it on YouTube. I've never actually looked on YouTube, but a friend of mine had a bootleg VHS copy that we watched, and it was really, really good. That's awesome. I would love to watch that. There was a, a question after that was, Jack, do you feel you were born too late that you missed out on the time when joining a rock band was like running away to the circus? To which Jack replied, I didn't have those kinds of rock star dreams. I wanted to play in smaller clubs, even when we could fill bigger ones, because I knew it would be better there. I was always aiming low. That's the problem. To get mood and vibe, you have to aim low. 
The Stones have been playing a lot of club shows in the last few years. I'm sure the vibe is better. Now, we're talking a lot about the Rolling Stones here. Obviously, everyone on the planet Earth knows who the Rolling Stones are, but just a brief background of where they were and where they came from. They formed in London back in 1962, and their their first stable lineup was Brian Jones on uh, guitar and harmonica, Mick Jagger on lead vocals, Keith Richards on guitar and backing vocals, Bill Wyman on bass, Charlie Watts on drums, and Ian Stewart on piano. Stewart would then leave the group in uh, in 63, but did tour on and off with them until it looks like he died in about 85. So the Stones came together in a major city that was picking itself up after and still in a lot of ways recovering from World War II. I think it's fair to say. Like, obviously, World War II was only 15 years prior to them getting together. Their city was being bombed. The British people at that time were not in the position the American people were. America was booming. America had disposable income. England was a lot different environment at that time, and it bred a different kind of person, bred a different kind of attitude. And I think you could draw some parallel. I mean, obviously, London is maybe more of like the posh example of, of it, but you could draw a lot of comparisons between Britain at that time in the late 50s, early 60s, and Detroit where Detroit may as well be bombed out, James. I mean, it may as well be a war zone, but it's it's recovering from a crash and clinging to life. And both areas were searching for a renaissance, I think it would be fair to say. Yes. Keith and Mick were childhood friends and classmates in a town called Dartford, Kent, in the 50s. I believe they met on a bus. I was watching a documentary on Keith Richards where he went into this. It was really cool. But they bonded over artists like Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry, Howlin' Wolf, Bo Diddley, Little Richard. They pulled heavily from the blues and really that's kind of their bread and butter. That's where they are. So that's yet another connection to Jack. Both of these artists found that 30s blues and pulsating rock and roll at a very tender age and that's what informed their musical tastes but i think the blues is the big distinction between like the rolling stones and the beatles the beatles they had the blues like a little bit but whenever they did it it was more like a pastiche when the stones did it they were trying to do it for real but they were white guys doing it so again another commonality between them and jack white plastic soul plastic soul right yes they i think the beatles were a bit embarrassed by it plastic soul man plastic soul plastic soul man maybe they felt it was disingenuous to actually who they were they felt more of a connection to little richard yeah african-american artists such as little richard and stuff that was a little bit more yeah their speed motowny r&b roots Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff so the next stage after the blues sure yeah, and that kind of paints a picture there, and obviously the, the Rolling Stones became the second most popular band in the entire world during the British invasion, and their bad boy sort of raucous kind of look was one of their central appeals. And you look at the influences of Jack White, and it's often bad boys. You know, it's often uh, people with shady pasts or some sort of debilitating alcoholism, like Robert Johnson was a fiend. Yeah and Iggy and the Stooges, you know, all these guys have a wildness to them. As we've heard Jack describe recently when talking about modern rock, he's waiting for a younger generation to come by that has a wildness to it to bring that wild spirit back to rock and roll. And that's what the Stones really embodied.
we touched a little bit on shared influences. Uh, the 30s bluesmen were, as we mentioned, some of those key influences. And Rolling Stone in that article had asked them about those shared influences. Keith Richards says, We were slowly going back. When I was into Chuck and Bo, I wanted to know what they were listening to. Who turned them on? When Chuck Berry started out, he wanted to be Nat King Cole, and he did a damn good imitation. Jack White says, The more you look into it, it's all the same family, and you're lucky to be a part of it. The difference is, Charlie Patton didn't get his photo taken very often. Sunhouse didn't get to make that many records. But you pull certain things from those guys. From Kokomo Arnold, I get the vocal phrasing. As I woke up this morning, and I looked out those Says I know my mammy's milk cup put in Mama Lord by the way she loads. Lord, if you see my milk cup put in, I said, please drive her home. From Blind Willie Johnson, it's the slide guitar. So that's them talking about what they're pulling from each respective artist. Hmm. Robert Johnson, we mentioned, was a big common bit of musical ancestry between the two of Robert Johnson. Keith said the subject matter and the way they were treated, let alone the guitar playing, which sounded like Bach. It was so eerie and compelling. You'd think you had a handle on the blues, then you'd hear Robert Johnson and think you'd have a long way to go yet. Obviously, the Stones would famously cover Love in Vain blues. Well, I followed With a suitcase in my hand Yeah, I found out to the station With a suitcase in my hand Well, it's hard to tell, it's hard to tell When all your love's in vain All my love's in vain the train roll up to the station I looked her in the eye when the train roll up to the station and I looked her in the eye and stop stop breaking down blues a Jack White cover as well Jack covered it and not knowing that the Rolling Stones covered it until later yes Jack didn't know that the Stones had it on their album Exile on Main Street when Jack put it out on the first White Stripes record in 1999 did you know it was originally intended to be the b-side of the big three killed by baby Hmm. so obviously he had a lot of faith in that song
it's definitely one of the more accessible tunes on on that album. Yes, for sure. So as we talked about, Jack and the White Stripes opened for the Rolling Stones in their 2002 tour, and that's really cool. That would have been an awesome show to see. We've seen that with Jack once or twice. For instance, on that Tours tour, he opened for Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. and that was where he, you know, there's all those awesome stories of Dylan giving him advice backstage and stuff. But obviously, Jack is the darling of the old guard because of the t- type of sound he makes. But before the Dylan stuff ever happened, the Stones gave the Stripes that break in 2002. You know, we weren't up for the pretty things a couple years ago, and we thought that was a big deal. <laughs> we never think a stupid two-piece band from Detroit would get to the point of warming up for the Rolling Stones. It's, it's, a, it's just a huge thing that tells us that things have changed. <laughs> it's been the pinnacle warm-up gig for any band for the last 30 years. You know, for us to be there like with Stevie Wonder and Ike and Tina, it's, it's amazing. I can't believe it. Well, you know, we thought maybe it's like, oh, could we maybe it'll just be all the hits and maybe it'll just be all the crowd pleasers, but they just did so many great things. Like, love in vain and Ron Woods slide playing on that. It's just amazing. And, no expectations and you know, tumbling dice and tone and frayed. It's, I can't believe you know it's great that they finally you know that they're doing such a strong number of those kind of great songs. You know, that maybe they got maybe you know in other times it was harder to play those. You know, it's great that the, the time has come. You know, can all hear them again. So we're talking. This is pre-elephant era too. So they're only just starting to pick up steam. They have success under their belt, but they have yet to hit it. Truly big time. Yeah, I mean, Fell in Love with a Girl was a smash, but... Pre-Seven Nation Army. It's interesting you mentioned Seven Nation Army. That is the only instance I could find of the Rolling Stones actually covering the White Stripes. Now, this is from an NME article in 2006, which is a part of that Bigger Bang tour, which the Shine a Light documentary was based on. But the Stones had invited a bunch of sort of famous people on stage, one of which was Marco Materazzi, who was a member of the World Cup winning Italian football team. And he and French captain Zendine Zidane helped the Stones lead the crowd in an a cappella version of Seven Nation Army, substituting the original lyrics for We Are the Champions in Italian. So there's a thing. That happened. All right. Honestly, I couldn't find too much about the hows and whys of the White Stripes and the Stones got together for that 2002 tour. But we did know that, as James, you mentioned, they were starting to become quite famous at that point. And it did make sense if the Rolling Stones were to hear that. Yeah, it could have also been just they were passing around the same town at the same time and uh, managers and publicist talking and stuff so who knows i mean obviously they do and i'm sure somebody knows out there so please if you know write in third men podcast at gmail.com at our age we we are at in a spot we're in where sometimes it just feels like god sometimes some things are pointless and so much work and some of it's not worth it but they've kept going for so long at their age to have so much energy and keep doing it i can't imagine it's really great it's really something to look up to Yeah, in 2002, they were named the People of the Year by Rolling Stone magazine, and that's when they they, they talk a little bit about opening for the Rolling Stones and such. So obviously they were getting a lot of attention, and I think Rolling Stone magazine kind of does represent the rock and roll establishment, so you could extrapolate from there. Do they make music, Paul? Or do me and you make music? Yeah, good point. So speaking of collaboration, we'll talk a little bit about the times that Jack and 
his friends in the Stones have collaborated. Now, the first one I found here was uh, Jack White photographing Mick Jagger for part of his Polaroid collection. Do you remember this? Oh, uh, yeah. The um, the Impossible uh, Project. Impossible Project, which is well known beyond Third Man Records, but Third Man Records put out a, a series of Impossible Project Polaroid film that was all yellow and did a contest, and Jack White did a photo collage of, of his own and photographed... Mr. Jagger. Yes. Yes, he did. So this is via NME. Jack starts out this article by saying, there's a romantic feeling of pulling a photograph out of a Polaroid camera. And it goes on to say, Jack White has shared photos from his personal collection. The pictures come as part of the Impossible Project, which showcases work produced on the new i1 instant camera using original Polaroid film. White is one of the photographers to be featured as part of the project's launch, with his snaps including a candid photo of Mick Jagger and a rather creepy looking clown. He had tweeted those. We'll put those on our Facebook page so you can see them. They're gross. Uh, Photography using mechanical means is a beautiful art form, White said. (laughs) Digital pictures are very portable and easy to make happen, but you can't hold the photo in your hand or put it in a family album. There's a romantic feeling of pulling a photograph out of a Polaroid camera, holding it in your hands and showing it to others. It can't be replaced or replicated. No one ever showed Jack the kiosk at CVS where you can do that. (laughs) I took a digital photograph to pick which one I liked. I have a disconnect with his feelings here, and, and I know this is a weird tangent, but at what point does a mechanism become too technical for him? Like, I think I get it. Like, does is the screen? Is it the screen? Is that what he's averse to? Because it's all the same technology. It's just one has a computer chip in it, which a computer chip in and of itself is technology. I think he would say. It has to be in some way visible. He likes to see the gears because that's part of when he was talking about. I, I, I'm recalling this. But from, when the gears are smaller, <laughs> does it make it less of a thing? Like, I just don't understand the disconnect. It's, it's here. the visibility. I, I And again, he would be the definitive source on that. But in that Adam Savage interview, as I'm recalling, he did say something like he hates when music is invisible or when this is invisible or that's invisible. So I think he likes to see and feel and connect to the technology on that level. Okay. I'm not saying you're wrong or anything. I'm just no, I'm, I know. I'm theorizing that is what that distinction I, is. I love the man and I respect him and I take what he says and I try my best to explain away some of these problems. But it's kind of like a kid who has problems with God and he's just like, but why can't this happen? <laughs> you know, it's just like, I get what you're saying, Jack. The manual touch still has a certain aesthetic appeal to it and can make you feel more connected to the artwork and all that. But there's a definite line that is... Well, there's no definite line. Like There's there's yeah. a very blurry line. Yeah, super blurry. Uh, super blurry. Between what is considered, quote, digital and what is considered, quote, mechanical. And I, it, I think it's the computer chip, but even the computer chip, it's still... A, anyway, we're go- this is a weird tangent into stuff we're not really talking about this episode i think if we were to ever talk to him he would explain what that nuance difference is for three hours (laughs) only three hours (laughs) and and he would stop at the three hour mark and tell us i have to go now (laughs) my people somewhere to be 
I have something better to, to do. do. <laughs> uh, so, James, this is one of the more interesting things I found. Do you know there was a rumor that Jack White would be either producing or collaborating with the Rolling Stones on a new record? I remember the rumor. Well, I remember a rumor about it when it was around the time of the Polaroid thing. Yes. And because people saw the Polaroid and they saw Mick Jagger bowling with Jack White, they assumed that there was a project in the works. And there was. We still haven't seen it. This is via newsradio.com. Rumors began circulating in October of 2015 that Mick and Jack were collaborating on, on a new Rolling Stones project because Mick was hanging around Third Man in Nashville. This is the article. Rumors are flying after Mick Jagger was recently spotted with Jack White at a show in Nashville, according to Ultimate Classic Rock. The two were listening to Canadian rock duo Death From Above 1979 perform at Third Man Records, White's recording studio that also serves as a store, lounge, and offices for their record label. The sighting readdressed rumors that began as early as 2009 about White working with the Rolling Stones on their first studio album since 2005's A Bigger Bang. Rolling Stone magazine pursued news that White had recorded some tracks with Keith Richards. While Richards hesitated from commenting on White's role or potential role with the band, he did admit, quote, I enjoy working with Jack. I know Jack pretty well. He's a lovely player. Two musicians spotted at the same show may not be the most substantial incident to fuel speculation about working together, but if there's any truth to White's potential collaboration, it could certainly make for an interesting Rolling Stones sound. I agree wholeheartedly. Keith Richards commented more about this via The Sun in the UK, and this is a little bit later. I think this is from 2016. Mm -hmm. Keith Richards wants Jack White to work his production magic for the Rolling Stones' 50th anniversary, he said. The door is wide open for Jack, was the quote. The veteran group are meeting again next month to discuss plans for their big comeback. Come back from what? They've been going and going. Yeah. They're still around. Like I know. Keith, Mick Jagger, Ronnie Wood, and Charlie Watts have announced they will hit the road with huge shows in 2013. Okay, so this is this is actually a couple years old. And release a documentary. Mick's model daughter, Georgia, was too young to tour with them last time, but will be with them next year. Here's And then they just show a bunch of pictures of his daughter. Yeah, that Death from Above 1979 thing, though, where the Stones were hanging out. Third Man, that was the bowling incident. Uh, Death from Above 1979. Some members of the Rolling Stones. I don't remember if it was Keith Richards or Mick Jagger. I think it was Keith. And Jack White went out bowling. And uh, that was a thing. Oh, after that 1970. Okay, yeah, the Death yes. from Above thing. Yeah. Uh, have you ever listened to Death from Above 1979? I haven't given them Not much. a whole lot. Yeah. Maybe we'll play a little bit of that here. this during the Halloween episode because we went over the, the Death From Above 1979 concert a little bit in that episode. But a quote from the band 
Death from Above 1979. Oh yeah, Mick Jagger was there. Did we mention that we went out to dinner with Jack and Mick after that, (laughs) then went bowling until 3 a.m.? It's also worth noting that Jack got the highest score, followed by Sebastian. (laughs) Mick and Jesse tied. (laughs) Oh, that's really good. I love that. So that's cool. They're obviously hanging out. They're partying. I think that's really interesting. The only formal collaboration they've really done up to this point, James, is a song we talked about on our Five on the Live covers episode, which was Jack joining the Rolling Stones on stage at the Beacon Theater in New York City on November 1st, 2006, to sing Loving Cup. This one's called Loving Cup. The Loving Cup. Loving Cup. Yeah, so this is, uh, I mean, we talked about it on that episode, so not to belabor this, but that was from Shine a Light, and it was uh, released on April 7th, 2008, and it's uh, track five on disc one. The film was by Martin Scorsese, and also features guest appearances by Buddy Guy and Christina Aguilera. magazine jack how did you and mick choose loving cup as your duet jack says mick called me i offered up six or seven songs which were all shot down factory girl from beggar's banquet was talked about another one was shake your hips the slim harpo cover on exile on main street then he said loving cup that was great for years at white stripe shows we played loving cup over the pa as the crowd was leaving i just wanted to harmonize with mick i didn't necessarily want my own verse but he said take one loving cup and then they ask <laughs> was exile on main street an important album for you and jack says i didn't know much about exile until meg and i did the first white stripes album in 1999 we covered stop breaking down but we did it from robert johnson i didn't know that song was on exile aftermath and beggar's banquet were the stones albums i listened to let it bleed my favorite beggar's banquet's pretty close to that too those are my favorites i mean a lot of our friends it's, it's always exile everyone always says exile main street which is pretty great but i, I still love let it bleed and beggar's banquet better i just i love the songwriting the, the different things they were doing Then someone told me the Stones do Stop Breaking Down. My roommate at the time, Exile, was his favorite album, and he played it for me. So that gives you some examples of Jack's knowledge of the Rolling Stones up to that point. It sounds a lot like yours and mine, to be honest. We're not the biggest Rolling Stones fans in the world. We have favorite albums. We have favorite periods, sort of. And I don't think either of us particularly dislike the Rolling Stones. We're not huge fans. Right. I own three of their albums, and one of them is Exile on Main Street. Yeah, and it's a good one to own. So, James, speaking of being huge fans, let's transition now to our interview and kick it to our third Beatle this week. What do you say? Uh, Yeah, let's kick it to our third Beatle this week. Uh Yeah, groovy gear fab, (laughs) Shagadelic. (laughs) 
we'd like to welcome our guest for this week, Ryan Brady of the Take It Away podcast. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you both for having me. It's an honor. It really is. This is the first show I've done outside of Chris and my show. So thank you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on. We greatly appreciate it on multiple levels. Many levels. Not only are you coming on our Jack White show, but you host an amazing McCartney-branded Beatles-esque podcast, which <laughs> yes. is... Beatles-esque is right, yeah. (laughs) I think me and Paul are both happy to know people are talking about the weird esoteric lives of the Beatles, um, (laughs) aside from us. Yeah. Uh, So... So Although Chris has got to really learn how to pronounce Gontrapo. It's not tropo. It's definitely <laughs> tropo. But anyway. Well, yeah, you guys are just talking about you had found our show from Return to Pepperland, and you guys were like, how is this guy? Somebody else is talking about this album? <laughs> yeah, it's it was – and in listening to that episode, I heard some commonality between how we approach things. I think you guys, you guys have a, a bit more structure. James and I sort of just goof around. But the structure I found really interesting about your podcast, which again is – for our listeners is Take It Away. And it is a chronological study of Paul McCartney's albums, solo records over the years which I've been sort of listening to backwards because I prefer his... Oh, really? Yeah, because I prefer his 80s stuff. <laughs> and so... That, wow, okay. Yeah. It's yeah. a nostalgic thing more than likely because that's probably the stuff we grew up closest yeah. to. Because like, I don't know, like Hope of Deliverance is my favorite solo McCartney song. That's amazing, yeah. And I'm sure that's blasphemy to a lot of people. Well, yeah, James, you were of that age for Off the Ground and I was of that age right. for Flowers in the Dirt. And so, the, but... You know, Press the Play was also playing a lot on MTV and stuff. But anyway, that's enough of us talking. Ryan, do you want to just talk a little bit about the show and what made you want to start that show? Well, you gave me the perfect transition. So, I mean, James, you just said, Hope of Deliverance. You're like, this is a great song. Why does nobody know this song? (laughs) Why is Paul... He doesn't play it live anymore, but he'll play something like, I lost my little girl. You know, this... (laughs) It's like, why are you playing that when you could play any Wings song or any song off of McCartney too? That's yeah. that's crazy. And then you dig further down and the and the onion just keeps getting stinkier as you go down. Because <laughs> he has all these B-sides and these boot and even bootlegs. You're like, this is better than 40%, 60% of the album. Yeah. What what what's the thought process? So so Chris and I met, it would have been 2005 or six. It was right around then. So he was actually a professor at a school I went to, and oh. I, I turned in, a, I was in a music technology class, and I had quoted the song Cage yeah. off the Back to the Egg album. Right. Yeah. The, the, the <laughs> whole riff, just I just stole it, because I'm like, no one's going to know oh my God. if I steal this riff. <laughs> and he pulled me aside after class, and he's like, is that Cage? From the B-side or bootlegs of Beck Egg. And I was just, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get thrown out of school. Like, <laughs> yeah, so that was it. I have to stop you right there because I did something very, very similar with George's Devil's Radio song for a creative oh, writing yeah, yeah. class. I, I, I did like a slam poetry version of it because I was like... No one's going to know what the hell this is. No, yeah, just no yeah. one's going to know. I think, James, I think we may have found our soulmates. I'm going to call my wife yeah. and uh, really just call, you know, call the whole thing off. Call it off. Yeah. Call it off, man. <laughs> it happened later oh, in life, man. but that's how it happens. Wow. 
so I love this show. It's it's an amazing. You, you guys have great banter back and forth, and one of the things I love about it is the differing opinions. Uh, for instance, it boggles my mind that you could hate the song "Press" so much and love "Ebony and Ivory" so much. Right. And so I just right, right, so right, the, right. there are some things I just. Uh, it's interesting to hear somebody else talk about these things and bringing that back around to the show we're on at the moment. I think that was part of the reason why James and I wanted to do this show about Jack White is because we were looking around and we were thinking nobody's doing this so we have to do it if no one's doing it right yeah and so that's kind of where we landed on that and jack white has a albeit a smaller more niche fan base but i don't i don't want to say equally as avid but they are definitely in an engaged fan base and i think um yes we're just operating on different scales with that but one of the bigger things we found in our research because we thought there was no overlap was that there is actually a lot of overlap Mm -hmm. between jack white and the beatles yeah and so that's what we're here talking with you about today we have some examples of this And we're going to kind of go through a few of them here and talk about them, but they're kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. Before we get to that, Ryan, what would you say was your awareness of Jack White prior to agreeing to do this show very graciously? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I have a couple pals, specifically one, a guy named Pat Frank, who I'll shout out if he's listening, because I know he listens to you guys. Awesome. That loves Jack. And he's always just sent me music, but he'll send me the latest Jack White stuff. Like, have you heard this? Have you seen this? And I, my first entrance into Jack would have been – I was working at a Borders. Remember when those were still around? Yes, we do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like early aughts, oughties, whatever you call them. Yeah. And mm-hmm. some guy was like, yo, you're like a Beatles guy, right? You want to hear – you want to hear some real music that's being made now? And I'm like, yeah, right, sure, whatever, man. <laughs> you know, because I'm, you know, the big rock snob that I am. And <laughs> and he played me uh, the song, the doorbell. Yeah. Of, uh, is, that the, is that the second White Stripes album? or It's uh, Get Behind Me Satan, the fifth one, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah, Get Behind yeah. And I just, I remember him press and play. We were in my car. And I couldn't believe how good of a song it was. Yeah, there's a McCartney-esque tune right there. Yeah, yeah, it's just hooky. And when you guys asked me to or asked us to be on the show, I just was digging around and I, like um, some of the links you sent. I know we're going to chat about. I couldn't believe how good of a drummer he was. Yeah, like there, there's that. Yeah, and he has a lot of. I'd say Jack White, Dave Grohl. There's these these certain guys, these like rock guys yeah. that have found a place in the alternative modern rock Mm -hmm. like what's happening today but they're just what the beatles would have been doing now right like it's this it's the same process so yeah i don't know if i'm answering your question exactly but (laughs) no you are yeah in a roundabout way this is why i've always preferred the employees to borders as opposed to the employees of walden books (laughs) who were busy trying to uh shove i don't know what kind of i don't know Vitamin C? What was popular around that time? Vitamin C? (laughs) I haven't heard that in a long time. (laughs) Should play a clip of that right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, man. So were you aware at all of like, because like he's had a couple cultural moments where he has sort of pierced the zeitgeist. Seven Nation Army would be an example of that. Yes, yes, yes. The Lego video for Fell in Love with a Girl had either of those popped up yes. on your radar? Absolutely. I remember that, was that 2003 or four? the Seven Nation Army? Yeah. I just, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing that video yeah. everywhere. You'd turn your head like, oh, or that riff, you hear it all the time. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. I like him a lot. I just was so busy, I guess, dealing with wings at the time. <laughs> I just <laughs> didn't dive in, but it sounds like maybe I have to now. Yeah, I think maybe you have a Jeff Britton problem. I think you're a little too deep <laughs> yeah. into the Jeff Britton, maybe. <laughs> you use the proper terminology of dealing with wings because I feel like that's a lot of Beatle, Beatle fans are trying to deal with wings. Yes. Regular listeners to the show know that James and I are big, big Beatle fans, and we're launching a second podcast with our dad, who is doing a chronological history of the Beatles from start to finish. Wow. Which is not album based, but a timeline. And it's this, it's mm-hmm. this really cool thing we're launching there. So we're stepping into that arena ourselves. But let's start talking about some of this overlap here because. Sure. Aside from connecting with different fans of the Jack White world and things like that and being able to talk to James more often, this podcast has given us a lot of interesting stuff we never would have known otherwise. And so one of the more obvious overlaps between Jack and Paul McCartney specifically would be Jack's performance of Mother Nature's Son, and that would be something at the Gershwin Prize Ceremony at the White House Mm -hmm. in 2010. this one out Ryan I saw that real time or maybe not real time whenever it came out I watched the whole thing you have Elvis Costello singing Penny Lane and yeah I think Seinfeld was even doing jokes like, yeah he made that joke like she's just 17 <laughs> you know what I mean You're like well no I don't know what you mean sir Paul what are you talking about Mr. President First Lady Sir Paul McCartney other people some of the songs, as they go by you, can make one unsure, even concerned sometimes about what exactly is happening in this song. <laughs> songs such as, I saw her standing there, and I quote, she was just 17, you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm not sure I do know what you mean, Sir Paul. I think I know what you mean. 
getting better from Sergeant Pepper. Again, quoting, I used to be cruel to my woman. I beat her and kept her apart from the things that she loved. Nice. In Jack's performance, it's... It's really good. I, I, I liked it a lot. So we'll do a little bit of background on it. This is from June 2nd, 2010. And McCartney was the first non-American to win the Gershwin Prize for contributions to the American songbook, mm-hmm. of which Obama was quoted as saying, we stole you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a prize that celebrates popular music in a variety of different genres and things. Other recipients being Tony Bennett, Smokey Robinson, Willie Nelson, Billy Joel, Carol King, Burt Bacharach, Hal David... Stevie Wonder and Paul Simon. And so in 2010, this thing took place right around the time of the BP oil spill. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of moody kind of things going on, but it was sort of a lighthearted affair. And they only took a few moments here and there to sort of be political. Uh, McCartney was quoted as saying, uh, getting this prize would just be good enough, but getting it from this president, which he said to some laughter. And then he said, after the last eight years, it's great to have a president who knows what a library is. Wow. So a little zinger from (laughs) Sir Paul there. (laughs) Yeah, that's how how he is. It pops up every once in a while. It does. It does. And so the other performances were really cool. Like, obviously, Paul's friends with Costello and Billy Joel and Stevie Wonder and Dave Grohl. But they'd also had the Jonas Brothers, Emmylou Harris, Herbie Hancock, and Corinne Bailey Ray, a classical Chinese pianist, Lang Lang, who performed Celebration, which I think is from the Liverpool Oratorio. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. And uh, Faith Hill. But the standout for me was, aside from Jerry Seinfeld making weird pedophile jokes at Paul McCartney, was um, <laughs> was Jack doing Mother Nature's Son, and particularly injecting that would be something in there. Because mm-hmm. Jack is really known for his, like, Delta Blues deep cuts, and he really loves to, like, get in there with songs no one's heard of. That would be something as kind of a forgotten gem from the McCartney album Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I I think that album has probably aged well over time, but still not a lot of people really are readily aware of that would be something. No. Do you have background over Paul's acoustic evolution? What do you think about that would be something combined with Mother Nature's Son? Yeah, absolutely. So Mother Nature's Son, what a highlight of the the Beatles, aka the White Album, right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. When Paul gets quiet, he's just so damn good. And he does that better than any artist that I, I can't even name one that does it as good as Paul. And Jack just takes me as this kind of raw, authentic, I don't want to say folksy, but maybe rootsy. Like he's just mm-hmm. like, he's an American guy. And those songs, Mother Nature's Son, and that would be something, they're like the honest side of Paul, yeah. where he's not shellacking on like all <laughs> kinds of synthesizers and stuff. It's just him. Like He even talks about the McCartney album. He's like, I plugged right back into the back of the tape machine, and I got that pure sound. Mm-hmm. So I, that would be something, and Mother Nature's Son, what, Mother Nature's Son's like 68, and then that would be something as a couple of years later. That's that sweet, deep golden vein of that McCart like he just couldn't write a bad song yeah and I think maybe Jack understands that and he's putting that on display I mean I don't know I I didn't read any interviews or anything but I think those are two raw and authentic songs and they're honest yeah they tap into Jack's like you said folksy aside a little more Mm -hmm. because they're you know they're obviously very acoustic based and Jack was pulling a lot from his 
time with uh, T-Bone Burnett and doing right. the Cold Mountain soundtrack stuff. He was definitely familiar with that type of sound, and I think that probably resonated with him more so than the poppier kind of numbers. see him playing temporary secretary uh, necessarily but <laughs> right you know doing the fun like Paul McCartney scatting of that would be something <laughs> like kind right. of seems more in line with what he would do <laughs> One quote about Jack in relation to Paul, which I found very interesting Mm -hmm. here, and it was from a 2009MTV.com article, but Jack was quoted as saying, Paul is my favorite Beatle. He's been a big influence on me, especially the way he sings. Mm. Uh, And then it goes on to say, White cited an early track as the point of inspiration for his Paul love. He said, quote, I heard a cover song they did early on called Hippie Hippie Shake that Paul sang, Mm. and I loved how he sang it, White said. My voice isn't comfortable in the higher range, but that song was a big influence on me trying to get my voice somewhere like that, which actually opened that up a lot for me because, yeah, Jack doesn't have the melody in his voice. He's a little more akin to, like, a Lennon singing in that way. It's more guttural. It's more sort of screechy in, in a way. But knowing that in the back of his mind he's trying to hit that vocal range is... Interesting. And yeah, James, as you mentioned, like McCartney has those scatting songs. There's times where he's doing those weird things with his mouth. And Jack does that too. Another point of commonality between the two. Yeah, that's a great quote. I've never heard that quote before. And I always thought John sang Hippie Hippie Shake. So I, I would I stand corrected there. I would have said that's that's a John song. That's Paul. Wow. Yeah, you can hear it on the Star Club pretty clearly i don't know if you've heard that lp but um it's sort of crappy quality but it's the most clear quality i think we have of paul doing that and i believe they did it on the bbc as well if i'm not mistaken
I gotta recheck that out. You know, sometimes in some of that early stuff, I can't tell. Well, I mean, you can now, but when you're first listening, you're like, is that George or is that Paul? <laughs> like, I, like, you know. Yeah, you can always tell it's George if he, if somebody's yeah. pronouncing it the instead of there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or k. Yeah. 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 But anyway, that so that, uh, that performance was cool. And I, I love the deep cut thing with that would be something. And I think the most bizarre point of that evening was when they're all on stage singing Hey Jude together and Jack White is up there yes. standing next to Jerry Seinfeld looking extremely yes. uncomfortable. <laughs> yep. It's a, amazing. It's like a Seinfeld episode onto itself, that moment. Yeah. From there, we'll move on here to another sort of subtopic here, which was Jack White guesting on the Henchman album Hench Fourth, where they did a handful of singles, one of which being Some Other Guy. Which yeah. I always immediately associate with the Beatles. I don't know about you, Ryan. Do you, uh, that's yeah, I do. Just connected forever with them. Yeah, the intro. You you nailed it. The two moments they're kind of similar to Instant Karma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, like the intro to Instant Karma. Dun. Yeah. Um, kind of a nice little build-up. I mean, the Beatles play with build-up, too, in their, in their songs, trying to culminate to some sort of higher thing, which they may have pulled from that. I don't know. But do you have any insight about Some Other Guy or when you may have heard the Beatles first perform that? I actually don't know exactly when I first heard the performance. I do love them doing that song. I think when I you know, was listening to that before the show, it kind of kicked back something back up in my head that this conversation goes around and around, and sometimes... I guess I'm trying to find the right words for it. So the Beatles and actually Elvis Presley before that, Mm. they took like black culture music and repackaged it for a white audience, right? And Mm -hmm. they learned that trick from Elvis. This is something that just happens over and over again in society. Like look at rap music now or R&B music. And I mean, I don't mean to make it a race thing or to come off like I'm saying anything controversial, but right. there's just something in some of those old, pure R&B and rock and roll records that you couldn't find at the time. Like all the people that were doing white music, you'd call it, it was like, there's like a singing nun song or something <laughs> around. Like, yes. like yes. it's like very dry and very stale. Perry and Cuomo, that kind like, of thing. Yeah, Perry, which is great stuff. Frank Sinatra, all that. But like, Rock and roll was scary and it was sexy and it was fun. And I think that's what's beautiful about guys like Jack White or the Beatles or McCartney is that they blend all these styles together and it's safe for everybody. It's like everybody can listen to this music. I'm 
Sorry if that kind of took it too far in that question. That's but fine. Yeah, please. They also were true to the roots of where the music came from in both instances, I think, which not only made it sound like it belonged, but also they were able to promote the musicians that they liked alongside it. Yeah. In both cases, I, I, f- I think the Beatles more so later in their career were able to promote, you know, a lot of their influences after the fact. Yeah, it's it's interesting the way they latched on to music that wasn't normally considered something they could touch. Right. Made it accessible. I mean, that's basically the principle behind why the White Stripes are what they are, right? Because Jack felt self-conscious about playing black music as a white guy. Uh-huh. And so that he slapped all these gimmicks on top of it, so you were forced to confront the gimmick first and let the music pierce you second uh-huh. as a sort of a a defense mechanism like a shield against whatever the blowback would be it's almost like uh if you're playing a character mm-hmm. you can get away with so much more right yeah yeah then if you're out there saying this is me this is what i'm saying which i mean sort of leads us to another question we were going to talk about later but jack white's songwriting often uses characters for that exact reason and mccartney is notorious for that oh yeah and paul does use a lot of characters but the more i dig into music movies books artists, painters, like all art is autobiographical. Mm -hmm. So no matter how you want to present it, that person is usually singing about their life or at least something that they've seen or heard about in their life. Sure. And you're right, like like Randy Newman. I'm not going to say any of the lyrics that I could quote that Randy Newman used, but he hides those thoughts in characters because... To your point of, I used the gimmick and then people hear the music, Randy used the gimmick and then got the message about race relations across Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. I think McCartney does that too. Mm -hmm. I think McCartney is really afraid to show who he really is. Mm -hmm. And you guys said you love 80s McCartney. (laughs) Chris and I have been going, well, no, but, but but that's a perfect example of, I think, the art if you listen to the demos or even the demos from Flaming Pie, mm-hmm. they're really authentic and raw. And you're like, wow, this sounds like 66, 65 Beatles. Yeah. He hides the stuff in the modern production of the time because we're not Paul McCartney. As well, we all wish we could be, maybe. <laughs> but he has to fight to keep himself up on top of the charts or like in the public eye. So yeah. he has to play that character now, you know? Mm-hmm. So I mean, he's been hiding it. In production for a long time. <laughs> I mean, even in the 60s, yeah. you know, it seems like the stuff he was gravitating towards, which is why I think going back to his acoustic stuff, which is why I find some of that so refreshing, because he's the one that gravitates toward the big productions more often than not. Right. But we'll give just a little bit of background here, going coming back to some other guy. That was a song written by Jerry Lieber, Mike Stoller, and Richie Barrett. Okay. And Richie Barrett was the guy who released it in 62. <laughs> Charles, what I'd say. So talk about 
appropriation. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. He wound up dying in 2006. He was only about a decade older than the Beatles. He died kind of young. Mm. But yeah, it was a big hit in the Mersey scene at the time. And Liverpool groups like the Searchers and the Big Three, hmm. James, which is a... <laughs> uh, Jack White's got yeah. a song called The Big Three Killed My Baby. But anyway, that's how the Beatles sort of came into the Beatles radar. And mm-hmm. McCartney was quoted as saying, it was a great song. It really got us started because that's one of the earliest bits of film of the Beatles. It was the song we sang when Granada Television came to the cavern. referring to that sort of grainy club footage uh, from 62 yeah, yeah. of the Beatles playing that, which was shortly after actually Ringo joined the band. So they just missed Pete by, I don't know, a couple months or something. Mm. But uh, oddly enough, Pete Best did a cover of the song too and released it on his 1965 album, Best of the Beatles. Best of the Beatles. Love that. Yep. Good old Pete. We love Pete. God bless that man. Yeah. <laughs> we love him. We love seeing him at the fest every year. We love Pete. Great guy. But yeah, so that's some other guy and, and that kind of, when I heard Jack cover that song, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. Cause it's, it's a great version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we'll move on here to Jack's drum kit, which he was said to have uh, set up similar to Ringo's drum kit. I'd always wanted to build my own drum kit, so I designed the whole thing with Ludwig. They were nice enough to build it for me. It has a lot of features that I guess you don't see too often and see drummers play too often. And I like everything completely flat. All of these drums, I like them at the exact same level, so there's no rack, tom, you know, angled, blocking everything. It's nice and flat. Like Ringo used to have in the, in the Beatles, they'd have a really tiny kit so that the crowd could see him. All this screaming girls could see Ringo, so... I like that idea, and I like these really old-fashioned skinny stands. Instead of those giant monstrosities of metal they put around people's drum kits, these little skinny ones are so nice and just more elegant. I am a huge Ringo Starr fan and a Ringo Starr sympathizer all the time because, (laughs) you know, everybody's like, oh, Ringo, the luckiest guy in the world, all that. Think about being in a band with maniacs like Paul McCartney (laughs) and John Lennon, you know? You just have to be the most relaxed dude you know, Paul was, he's like, we'd bring in a song and then we'd learn it and we'd record it and then we'd have lunch or whatever. Mm-hmm. So Ringo had to be able to hear the music, put a part together, play it like the same way because McCartney wanted like certain exacting standards. Like you hear those stories on the White Album where he's like, oh, yeah. Well, you, you can't do back in the USSR, right? So I'm going to do it. Yeah. Or, yeah. He and John do the ballad of John and Yoko, and John starts talking about, like, I don't, I haven't confirmed this, so maybe you guys know, but they're talking, is Ringo Starr the best drummer in the world? And he answered, he's not even the best drummer in the Beatles. You've ever so, heard that? 
<laughs> I, I have, and I've I just got into, sadly, a Facebook argument over this very thing. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was actually never said. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. <laughs> According to Mark Lewison, trust that source if you will, yeah. it originated as a joke from a, a British comedian and was was not ever said because John thought very highly of Ringo and was was a, oh. was a big fan of Ringo's drumming. There's a forum out there where Mark Lewison chimes in and did all this research yeah. and was able to find like who said the joke, but there's a huge debate about it and I see that picture posted a lot and I still feel bad about, you know, trying to correct anybody on the internet about it but no you should it would it would have been very funny if it is true if he thought that way he wouldn't have asked Ringo to play on Plastic Ono Band you know I mean he right he wanted that comfort food from everything I've heard you know I mean obviously McCartney had his own thoughts about drumming and as you mentioned on the White Album that's why Ringo quit uh, is because mm-hmm. McCartney was being McCartney about it but yeah and you know that you hear stories like Ticket to Ride for instance right 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 that's a McCartney rhythm that Ringo was copying although doing it expertly well I think the proof is kind of in the pudding with Ringo in terms of like seeing what yeah. Pete was giving to the group and then seeing what Ringo added and honestly it's not the Beatles without Ringo it's just not no it's not it really isn't he's really great and I had the chance to see him a couple years ago, the all-star band. Yeah. And, you know, he's up there and he's doing the lounge singer thing (laughs) for the first few songs. (laughs) But then when he gets behind the kit and he's kicking the band and you just have that moment, you're like, oh, shit. One fourth of the Beatles is here. It's in the room. You can feel it. For anyone who hasn't heard uh, Ringo's excellent 2003 album, Ringo Rama, there's a song called Instant Amnesia on there where he Mm -hmm. is the most kick-ass drummer you've ever heard in your damn life yes and i always play that for people who are like oh yeah he sucks like uh sorry he doesn't He's really, really good. Yeah. And I kind of to go back to your question about, you know, like his technique or, or what's happening with his drums. I think the best thing that Ringo ever did, and I don't know whose decision this even was in the studio, but all the muffling and all the mm-hmm. sheets or whatever they were right. over the right. toms and the, especially on Abbey Road, yeah. like you listen to some of those things on the tom sounded so good. They get like a drum solo, like yeah. in, on the record, <laughs> you know? So, uh, no, I all the Ringo haters can take a hike, I think. <laughs> I, I think he's amazing. Unbelievable. That's a great transition into uh, another little subtopic here, which was Brendan Benson, who collaborated with Jack White on their group, The Rack and Tours, in 2006 and 2008, respectively. Brendan is a notorious Beatle-esque, McCartney-esque 
type artist. Yes. And he covered Don't Go Where the Road Don't Go, which was from Ringo's 1992 album Time Takes Time, which by the way, that was my good. that was my very first concert seeing Ringo Starr in 1992. I was 8 years old and I loved Time Takes Time. But anyway, so here but hearing anyone cover that song is bizarre. Yes. Yeah, uh, because you just don't hear it. that one and he covered let me roll it which james and i drunkenly yelled at him one time at a show to play and he did play which james and i are very embarrassed wow. about i want to tell Brendan, not Ringo, unfortunately, but yeah. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But but anyway, so Brendan is often thought of as the McCartney to Jack's line, and like Jack has got sort of the harsher kind of more... I don't know. He's got he's got the edges on him, and Brendan likes to sand those edges right off and just put in a lot of melody right there. What do you think the value of the collaboration between Lennon and McCartney was, and and did you ever think they individually reached the heights of their combined efforts together? Yeah, well, I will just straight off say that I definitely agree that Brendan is Jack's Paul, yeah. if Jack yeah. is John. Like that goes without saying. Or I, I guess I just said it. But, <laughs> so, so John and Paul. They pushed each other. Hmm. And it's not like an obvious sort of pushing. Like they're two separate personalities, completely separate. But they bonded. And a lot of people don't realize this in mainstream culture. Like they both lost their mothers, right? Yeah. So they, they had this pain together of not having your mom growing up. Like they were, it was before they were 20 years old. I can't even imagine how terrible that would be. Yeah. But John's this like rough and tumble guy that didn't really resolve those issues. And Paul had this dad who was an amazing guy who was a musician and like taught him, you do crossword puzzles and I'm going to play the piano and you, here's your trumpet, <laughs> here's the guitar. Yeah. And I think Paul and Ringo are from the same sort of camp where like they're the happy-go-lucky sort of guys yeah. in the band. At least they present themselves as that. And John and George, not so much. But John, and I was telling this to somebody the other day, like I'm so pissed off that John Lennon is not around right now yeah. because he had such a brilliant mind. 
he just could see the world kind of exactly as it was and then describe it very clearly in words. And Paul cannot do that very often. Mm-hmm. I think Paul can see the world, but he doesn't just he obfuscates everything. He hides. There's all even all those Beatles promo pictures where he's like hiding behind his <laughs> collar. That's you right, know? That's right. <laughs> and and so I, I think it like with John's brain and a brain like Paul, who is just as smart as John, who could understand John, could craft this beautiful machine around his words and, and add melodies and, mm-hmm. and finish things. So they really did do the best stuff together. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, have, just talking about all this, especially, it actually triggered me from Don't Go Where the Road Don't Go, which I I discovered from, have you guys ever read Andrew Grant Jackson's Still the Greatest? No. It came out, I think, 2012. No, I haven't. No. So this guy, Andrew Grant Jackson, took... He did what we all do, except he did it in a book form. And he's like, okay, imagine that the Beatles didn't break up. That's okay. And every couple – Yeah. Yeah. Every couple of years, this would have been the album. And he and he really digs <laughs> down deep and he gives you an argument for it. Yeah. And that Don't Go Where the Road Don't Go was on some early 90s, uh, air quotes, Beatles album. Ah, uh, yeah. Hmm. And I had actually heard Brendan's version because I was digging around in that song. I'm like, this song is awesome. Who's who's doing this? Yeah. You listen to those playlists mm-hmm. and if if you get the absolute top best stuff from those guys and you put it together, you get the same sensation right. as hearing a Beatles album. But it's not quite the same. It's so funny you say that because I think I, I was listening to... There's another podcast called Swinging Through the 60s with Richard Buskin, who was from a a great Beatle podcast called Something About the Beatles for a long time. And they were talking about that book. I haven't read it, but now that you say that, I remember them talking about that book. And so as an exercise, I went through, because I think Lennon said that too, I think in the... the Rolling Stone interview, he said like, well, just, or no, maybe it's the Playboy interview. He said, all right, just take the best bits from every album. And that's, yeah. that's, that's what they'll, that's like listening to the Beatles. So as an exercise, I did it with 1970. Okay. And if iTunes cooperates with me, I'm just going to re- bring that just because I have no other forum for this other than this conversation right at this moment. <laughs> Now's the time, my friend. This is it. Here is my 1970 Beatles album I titled Plastic Mac. The running order is as follows. Instant Karma, Every Night, My Sweet Lord, Teddy Boy, Ooh You, mm. Well, 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 What Is Life, Remember, Sentimental Journey, Junk, Working Class Hero, Hold On, and Maybe I'm Amazed. And that was my 1970. That's good. Yeah, maybe I'm amazed. It would definitely belong on, on a list like that every time I hear it. But Junk? Oh. I love Junk. Uh, it's a good song. <laughs> it's a lovely melody. I think George uh-oh. said that, right? He said, like, uh, George is obviously pissed off at Paul all the time. But I think one of his biggest compliments was, like, I don't know where he gets these melodies. He just plucks them out of the air. <laughs> yeah. True. Sentimental Journey is a is a bit of a stretch for me, too. I was but... trying to get some Ringo on there. <laughs> No, I know, I know. I feel like I feel like Paul or Paul may have gone along with it a little bit, but John would have said Ring, like he would have taken Ringo aside and went like, <laughs> "Look, I get it, but you can do that on your own album." Ringo. There's just there's just no other good Ringo from '70 to include. I was really close with Coochie Coochie, but that song is. <laughs> I'd throw in Bukus or however you say yeah. it, Bukus or Blues. I like that one. Yeah, but yeah, I. 
you more or less nailed it. Yeah, that's that's the Beatles album from '70, right? right? So that's a good album. I think it's a good album. Yeah. I mean, I listen to uh, the singles from it all the time. I mean, bringing bringing it back to your podcast. I mean, that's what I love. <laughs> that's what I love about Take It Away, which is its focus is solely on the solo years, which. I just love and find myself listening to actually more than the Beatles years more often than not. And I, I just really appreciate that you and Chris are, have dedicated an entire podcast to McCartney solo because it's so underappreciated. Well, yeah, that's the hypothesis, right? Or the thesis statement like, hey, look, we know you don't have the time to go through this, but we did. <laughs> so just <laughs> listen. <laughs> All right, so we have Jack White and Paul McCartney do show up on an album together. Mm-hmm. One time, they show up on 2011's Rave On, which is a Buddy Holly tribute album. Mm. Paul performs It's So Easy, which was an amazing vocal. When you hear it, it reminds me of Cut Me Some Slack a little bit. I got you one, two, three, four. <sighs> Jack contributes drums to his then-wife Karen Elson's cover of Crying, Waiting, Hoping. amazing for me because i never thought they were ever on an album together but yeah it's interesting that they both found themselves on this buddy holly tribute album what can you tell us about paul mccartney's fandom with buddy holly and how some of that songwriting may have crept into paul's aesthetic yeah i find paul's obsession with buddy holly endlessly fascinating and almost forgiving for myself in a way because it's like okay well if paul was obsessed that much with buddy holly to buy his catalog <laughs> I can be obsessed enough to have a podcast about him, <laughs> Paul. So, I mean, yeah, I there's actually a record that Paul did once he bought those songs or acquired some of Buddy's catalog that he did with Denny Lane. And I don't know if you guys have heard that, where Denny takes the, the lead vocal on most of the songs, and they're, it's just yeah. all Buddy Holly stuff. A Buddy Holly tracks? Yes. So 1977, this album came out called Holly Days. And it's the track that says Heartbeat, yeah. Moon Dreams, Rave On. I mean, you guys can look it up. But he, so they did it in the Rude Studios. And it's like finding a Lost Wings album. Yeah. But it's all sung by Denny Lane. But you get that <laughs> sensation of. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's really, really, really cool. And I'm just thinking like, 
I totally understand why Paul would have done this and why he wouldn't have put himself on the lead vocal because it's like what I would do yeah. <laughs> if mm-hmm. I acquired Paul Mc- – well, first of all, if I acquired Paul McCartney's catalog, I would disappear and never work a day again <laughs> for the rest, of, the rest of my life. You'd be able to eat comfortably on wonderful Christmas time forever. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. right. I know. <laughs> Every year I forward that around. You know he makes about half a million a year on this song alone. <laughs> <laughs> that is fascinating. I, I mean, there's a few weird Lost Wings albums in that way, like uh, McGear. Yes, which is the the one he yeah. the one he did with his brother Michael, and uh, I assume Auntie Jen's on there as well. But um, he also there's also <laughs> that, <laughs> there's also that he was saying Boo Earn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was saying Boo Earn. Yeah. <laughs> there's that other Denny Lane one, Japanese Tears or something from '80 or something. That's yeah. that's like his songs from Wings Back to the Egg era. Yeah, and some of those are so good. Yeah, yeah. We see Denny. Uh, I mean, I know you interviewed him on Take It Away. We we see him at the fest whenever he shows up there, which is oddly quite a bit. Yeah, but yeah, he's another he's another interesting one in terms of songwriting partnerships. You talk about those two playing off each other. I'm not really sure what Denny was giving to Paul's music there other than a sounding board? I don't know. Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, well, for that Denny Lane interview, that was like some of the most research I've ever done on anything (laughs) ever. Like we listened to every album of his and there are a lot of like gems in Denny's solo career. And he had all these hits. Like he had, he wrote that song for Colin Blundstone, Say You Don't Mind. That was a big hit. Yeah. I love that song. It's a really good song. And so Denny kind of perplexes me too because he was the warmest, nicest, kindest, funniest guy ever in person. And it kind of makes you wonder like, why didn't he get more say? Why didn't he get more output? And maybe he was just like the nice guy that was around that like knew the craft, was talented, was a sounding board in a sense, but he didn't like feel the need to push himself to the front sure. of the band. Yeah, I don't. Know, there's a documentary that came out. I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, but it was about. It's like called like ten feet or fifty feet or twenty feet from stardom or something along those lines, where it's like all these backing singers, background vocalists that have made a career of being a background vocalist. Mm-hmm. They all said. You know, it takes like a certain ego. It takes a certain self-confidence, a certain I'm better, I'm the best to push yourself just a little bit to the front of the stage and to be the guy or gal that leads the band. And maybe Denny just didn't care. He wanted to smoke some pot and play (laughs) guitar and have a good time, man. You know, I don't know. Jack's got that quality about him in all of his various bands. I think he made an attempt with the Raconteurs, which is the group with Brendan, to Mm -hmm. fade into the band a little bit more. And even with the dead weather. Can I just interest you guys in a sick Denny Lane pun, which was, he maybe thought it was a time to hide. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the foghorn sound? <laughs> Look, I prefaced this by asking if you guys wanted this, and you no, said yes. So I did. You're right, James. With jokes You're like right. that, you could sell an airplane to Geronimo. Oh. <laughs> oh. As I desperately search my brain for another joke to throw in. <laughs> Oh, 
we're all just lying around. But um, we have... Wow, 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 wow. The pun you never said. <laughs> Maybe I'm amazed. <laughs> <laughs> but, I was, uh, you know, Jack makes an attempt to blend into the groups. Like, his group... It's funny, in 2010, when he was doing that Gershwin thing, he was, that he was in full dead weather mode, which is the group that he plays the drums in. And he always tries to make an attempt to fade into the background. But it never happens he just naturally gravitates to the four because that's just the way he is he's just got that quality about him and it's interesting hearing him co-write songs with brendan benson versus co-writing something or contributing to something with allison mosshart from the kills because there's that sense of taking the lead right with him writing with brendan i feel like they were on equal footing a little bit but jack was going in and sort of just injecting his own stuff i think he tried to let allison take the lead with the dead weather stuff, James, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, yeah, I think that's, it was forced upon them in a, in a sense because it was the dead weather, which Ryan, if you don't know, is his third band. And right. it came about because he was injured and had bronchitis. So he couldn't take the lead like physically. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. And so Allison Mosshart, who was on tour with them, was able to come up on stage during their tour while he had this bronchitis and sing the lead to some of their songs on the Rack and Tours. And it led to this jam album where he sat in the back on drums because he couldn't stand up <laughs> and he didn't sing because he couldn't talk. And so I think it, it came about kind of forced like having Allison forced in the front. Right, right, right. I think he kind of liked that idea, but I think his fan base wouldn't let that happen and his charisma on stage wouldn't let that happen. You know, he gets up there and he steals the show when he yeah, he does, does a couple of his own songs. So yeah. it's interesting. Although Allison has her own charisma and way of doing it. Her and Brendan do it very differently where Brendan wants to be your best friend and Allison wants to be your lover or something along those <laughs> lines, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah from a from a lover it, to a friend they went to uh, hey we did it, it. just doesn't stop <laughs> coming up man <laughs> i mean we talk about songwriting approaches and, and we touched on a little bit of the characters another sort of subtopic here is the white stripes did cover your blues is the only time I've ever heard the Stripes cover a Beatles song. And it's interesting that he chose your blues. Uh, do you have thoughts on that song? I mean, that there's a deflecting song for Lennon, right? Because he titled it Your Blues as a gag to hide the fact that he was a white guy singing the blues. Yeah. Yeah. I love that song. And the recording, they did it in some tiny little room that wasn't even like a recording room. The Beatles yeah. said it. Uh, it was the four of them in a room. And... It was one of those records when I heard it as a kid, I couldn't stand it. I'm like, why is just a basic blues song even on this album? <laughs> like, you go from Martha, something like Martha, my dear, or Blackbird, or even Happiness is a Warm Gun, and like, you're blues. Like, who cares? But that's the song. As you get older, you're like, wow. I kind of understand what he's talking about. 
you know. Yeah, yeah. It's raw. That's as raw as London's ever been. So it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that the White Stripes covered it. That seems almost straight out of Jack White's songbook, something like that. It's a song by the Beatles you wouldn't necessarily expect to hear on a rock and roll pop band hearing I'm Lonely Wanna Die. Like, (laughs) it's... It's very, for a rock band that's trying to go avant-garde, it's very avant-garde for what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate it. It seems more visceral and honest. Yeah, honest. Like what we said up at the top, it's honest. Yeah. Then a lot of, you know, McCartney, obladi oblada is one thing, but, you know, your blues <laughs> is the polar opposite. So. Yeah. That it is. And they're always going back and forth, Lennon and McCartney, with trying to answer each's latest masterpiece with another masterpiece of their own. Like, it's so funny. I was editing the 1965 portion of our dad's show that we're putting out, and I was listening to I've Just Seen a Face, and I was thinking, my God, this was only recorded like a like a couple weeks after Help was recorded. And when you hear those two songs back to back, there's a lot of similarity there. And so I think they're really bouncing off each other. And with Your Blues, I'm not sure what the McCartney answer to Your Blues really is on that record. It's possible it's like Helter Skelter, maybe. But, mm. but um, I'm trying to think of another song of McCartney's on that album. Yeah, me too. That is an answer to Your Blues. I don't think I've got one. Why don't we do it in the road? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. Honestly, that may be the best example of that there, which of course is about monkeys having sex in India. So there, there you go. Uh, <laughs> which, which coincidentally, where where Lennon wrote your blues, and I believe the quote was, "I was sitting in paradise singing, I want to die." Yes. Which is, Woof. Yeah. <laughs> and I should say, I said, look, I can't relate to that song as a kid, but I can now. That's not to say I want to die or anything. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I just, you're like, oh yeah. It's like they're that adult, like, ah, oh, what do I do with this disappointment I haven't felt now that I'm in the real world? And, <laughs> and I, I think John was already talking about the band breaking up. Yeah, yeah. He, he was shifting away from that at that time. Yeah, for sure. I have another subtopic here about Jack's split with Detroit. Jack left Detroit around the time of, you mentioned my doorbell and... Love that one, yeah. That's from the album Get Behind Me Satan, which is the saddest album in the world with these happy songs but the happiness is all coated with this i mean it's sugar coating on pain underneath it's like what lennon said about imagine he said it's a plastic ono band covered in chocolate (laughs) you can have this horrible (laughs) that's amazing you can have this horrible horrible subject matter this deeply personal painful subject matter and then coat it with these happy-go-lucky little lyrics and call it a day and nobody realizes what you're even talking about. Anyway, Jack had a notoriously bad split with Detroit. He got super famous and all his friends got just sort of famous or not famous and he started getting a lot of flack, him and Meg, around town to the point where he had to leave. Now, the the Beatles had not a similar relationship to Liverpool, but it was rocky, actually, for a little while there where when they left Liverpool... There was sort of this feeling like, yo, you're too good for us, that kind of thing. And they put Liverpool on the map. Do you have any insight into Paul McCartney's relationship with Liverpool, either as a Beatle or uh, in the solo years? Yeah, so I actually even talked about this on the show. So ever since I was maybe, I'm how old am I now? I'm 31 now. When I was going to go to college, I wanted to go to LIPA, which is the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts. And that was the school that Paul and John met at. It wasn't called Lippa at the time. I forget exactly what it was called. The school went into disarray. 
or it wasn't in use. And in the mid 80s, Paul was made aware of that. And then he and another guy bought the school or acquired the school or financed enough money to reopen the place. And now it's this big university. Yeah. And there's all these, like that artist Dan Kroll, who I think he was on the charts a couple of years ago. He went to that school. And oh, cool. Liam Lynch, who is, you know, a Ringo associate of and Tenacious D and all those cool mm-hmm. cats. Oh, you know. yeah. So. I know Liverpool loves Paul, and Paul goes back. And, I mean, they named the airport after John Lennon, (laughs) so there's something to be said about that, too. Yeah, they seem to embrace them towards uh, the mid-half of the 80s, it seems. Yes, Uh, that's the time. I know when we went to Liverpool, they had turned it into a full-fledged Beatles tourist spot. And then on the side was Titanic. You know, you had like <laughs> right, two, right, right, very right, right, right. Di- yeah, two very different worlds. We went in 2001. So we went to the cavern. But, you know, you talk about the cavern and that is a prime example of just how little Liverpool gave a shit about the Beatles in the 70s. Yeah. Because they, they mm-hmm. filled it in and made it a parking lot or whatever it was. Crazy. But you can definitely see, James, I think you're absolutely right. The late 80s or the early 90s, they started to get their act together and realize that this is their legacy. It's football, the Titanic, and the Beatles. Like, that's what Liverpool is known for. And being salty. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy they did finally come around to that. And Jack, similarly to McCartney, invested a lot in Detroit, especially in recent years. He opened up a storefront in the Cass Corridor, which is this sort of rough part of town, and then opened a record manufacturing plant in Detroit. Oh, wow creating all these music jobs and all this and that and yeah he, he donated a lot of money to the masonic temple over there which was going to close because of uh, i think years of back taxes or something like that uh and then he donated a lot to clark park in detroit as well and i think they renamed a theater after him or something there That's because right. of the, the donations wow. he had he had sent so, yeah, similar philanthropy to his hometown than uh, that, like Paul McCartney, like you had said. Well, that's the right, I think that's the right thing to do. It sounds, I mean, even, or Kid Rock even, well, <laughs> if he doesn't run for senator, <laughs> he, he gives back to Detroit. Maybe that's where I should stop myself. Oh my well, you know, you know what, it's, it's fine. You know, there's, the, he gets a lot of flack for probably good reason, but um, he... <laughs> He does, you know, he did lift Detroit up a little bit, you know, so did Eminem, so did, you know, even, forgive me, but Insane Clown Posse, you know, gives yeah. back to Detroit. Oh, um, Insane Clown Posse is cool, man. That's that's good stuff. Yeah. So it's might not be your musical taste, but a lot of these musicians do try to help, it seems, and Jack is no stranger to it. And neither is Kid Rock. Yeah. So there's that. Right, 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 right. Kid Rock is considering changing his name to Kid Rock even. Because <laughs> and Kid Rock even, this guy. Comma, him? Him? Her? Um, was he funny or something? Um, so I'm now we're going to go just do a lightning round here because I know you got to go. We're going to do a lightning round and right. I'm going to hit I'm gonna hit a cu- couple topics. James, I'm going to get your take. Ryan, I'm going to get your take. Give it to me. One sentence, boil it down. Here we go. Let's go. Jack White and the Beatles independently know a Jack Lawrence. There's a Jack Lawrence in the dead weather and Jack Lawrence was an affiliate of Lee Eastman. Thoughts, go. James. I mostly know of the Jack Lawrence and the Jack connection. So other than... The Eastmans? I know nothing about this other Lawrence. Interesting, I guess. James doesn't care about the Eastmans. Ryan, go. That's the 45 or the record that he Paul pressed for Linda. It's like the rarest Paul McCartney song. If that's the last thing I do, I'm going to hear that song. Oh, and, Lauren, and he copywrote it. 
Oh. Yeah, so he copywrote the song and he recorded a version of it. That's in, right. And then the, a B-side, like a Latin-flavored version of it, pressed one vinyl. It's, yeah, it's like the mid-'80s, I think, and, or like Tug of War. You talked about that on your Return to yeah. Pepperland episode. That's right. That's right. I have wanted to hear that song for basically my entire life, and I will. <laughs> mark, mark my words. Okay. All right, Ryan, super greedy. All right, moving on. Karen Elson. <laughs> Karen Elson performed at Danny Harrison's George Fest along with Conan O'Brien. She'd play I'd Have You Anytime and joined in on the All Things Must Pass jam. James, thoughts, go. I wish Apple Scruffs was a part of it. Boom. All right, Ryan, go. Doesn't Danny Harrison look exactly like George yes, Harrison? He does. It is just <laughs> wild. Complaints and superficiality. Done. Got it. All right. <laughs> Greedy, superficial. <laughs> Hit me with a third one. And the last one here, lightning round. Jack White and Conan O'Brien performed Eddie Cochran's 20 Flight Rock together on the debut episode of Conan's new show in 2010. 20 Flight Rock being the song that got Paul into the Beatles. James, thoughts, go. Uh, I prefer the McCartney version. Okay. <laughs> James is an asshole. All right, Ryan, go. <laughs> Whoa. Uh, that's the song that Paul played for John, and he knew all the words, and that got him into the Beatles. I love that song. That's that's a that's a great one. Every time I hear it, I, I love it. Pure love coming from Ryan on that one. Greedy, superficial, <laughs> but has a lot of love and heart. <laughs> well, I think that describes Paul McCartney, actually. All right, real quick. <laughs> between the all three of us, last lightning round question from me. Favorite McCartney-Michael yeah. Jackson mashup song? Oh, I have thoughts on this based on what I heard Ryan and Chris say on their Pipes of Peace episode, which I disagree with <laughs> one million Uh-oh. thousand so percent. I think say The it, Girl man. Is Mine is the best of those three, <laughs> followed closely wow. by Say, 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 with the man dead last. Just dead, dead last. Left. Okay. Okay, well, for some reason, a lot of Chris's opinions, which are extremely aggressive, <laughs> end up becoming the podcast opinions. And then I have to deal with the hate mail, which <laughs> you have no idea how many people are like, not only like, what, you are an idiot, why do you like Ebony and I agree? But then also like, what's wrong with press, man? And if you re-listen to that stupid episode... I'm defending it. I'm like, there's a good version, there's a good mix, and Chris is like, this is the worst lyric. Which, okay, whatever, man. But, I mean, The Girl Is Mine, I actually really like that whole spoken word thing yeah, that they do. I do, too. Like, it's so funny. It's too silly. I was sitting in the, in, the, in the parking lot at the grocery store listening to Chris just take a giant dump all over that song, and I was like, ah! Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes. I agree with with his uh, with his position. Say 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 the man, the girl's mine. Is, that's that's the order. Say 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 is so good, Paul. I I love say say say. I will say 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 say. Yeah, I'll, I'm gonna <laughs> double that order. That's give us two of those, and then uh, and an order of fries. <laughs> yeah, an order of fries for for Paul. Fun fun fact. Last night I was blasting say 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 at an unreasonable volume in silver lake and it was echoing through the hills of uh of that part of los angeles <laughs> oh that was you yeah that was, <laughs> that was you that was me up there okay yeah, yeah. i i knew I, I, something was going on i heard yeah. it from my room i was like what's happening no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well this has been a lot of fun ryan thank you so much for joining us and please uh, give our best to chris and let him know what we've told you so much already which is that we love your podcast. I am a fan of your show, and please keep doing what you're doing. I hope you do a George one after. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We'll need a long vacation before <laughs> that, but uh, I thank you guys. We love your show too, and you know Paul and James. 
Thank you for having me on today. I had a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much. Don't be a stranger. You're welcome anytime. Yeah. Oh, I'll be back then. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ryan. Let's get back to the show, James. What do you say? Yeah, let's get back. James, that was such an interesting interview. We learned so much about the British bands, Paul. So many British bands. We appreciate uh, you all uh, bearing with us. If you'd like to know more about the Beatles, check out the (laughs) Yesterday and Today podcast that we work on with our father, Wayne Kaminsky. Boy, we're a bunch of episodes deep already, and we've been getting some great reaction to that podcast, and we promise we won't turn this into a Beatle podcast. We promise. We promise. Otherwise, you're in for another we're sorry segment. (laughs) But, James, that does bring us to some shout-outs for this week. We've got oh so many people who are interacting with us on social media. We'll shout-out here Michael J. Jason, who talked to us in the Thinking Persons Jack White group. That was super nice. Michael had some very kind words for us, so thank you very much, Michael. Lyle Hopwoods talked with us for a little while, and we appreciate Lyle's patronage. Thank you for your patronage. We appreciate your business. <laughs> Moving over to Twitter right now, we have Peter Elsnab or at Snabrocks on Twitter. So thank you very much. We've also got, there's just a bunch, Zach Carr. Thank you, Zach. We have Schizosemia or at Schizosemia on Twitter. Oh, hey, James, the Dirt Bombs and Mick Collins have been tweeting at us and with us on Twitter. Oh. So that's pretty. That's, would you look at that? Yeah, would you? James, would you look at that? We have Omad Records. Thank you, Omad Records. We have something called the Boom Years, who appears to be a Technicolor rock and roller. And uh, we have uh, A. Dan, Sandra Ward, Edgar Halgand, Gwen Williams. So many here. Brandon Streeter, thank you for joining us on social media and for tweeting at and with us and all that stuff. Kyle Ledford. Thanks, Kyle. We kind of thanked you last time for Sonophone Records retweeting and tweeting at us and whatnot, but uh, we've had such great interaction with you, Kyle. So uh, if you'd like to check out Kyle's stuff, check out Sonophone Records on Facebook, and uh, that's really, really cool. It's a pleasure to make Kyle's acquaintance. Yes. James, in addition to that, we've got some others we'd like to thank. Oh, we sure do, Paul. We've got... The Heart of the Operation, Amy Hart. We've got the Red Red Rain, Prosper. We've got the Punk Rock Queen, Adrian King. Our third person in spirit, always Kelly Durga. We've got I See You Over There, Eileen Corsano, Andre Ice Cold Lyman, My Oh Me, It's Me Oh My. Keeping us on those rails is Jeremy Riles. Gotta have the bones of the Operation, Kate McCoy. Can't forget about Eric Andrew Dodson over here. Ha <laughs> ha! It's 2.0. <laughs> I think it's a little sadder every time. <laughs> David Pope. We've got S.A. Franco. What does that mean? Huh? Thank you, Jerry. What does it mean? We've got Yvette Wilkins, Wilkin on Sunshine. Brendan and Smith. Brian Walter, be nicer to me. And, of course, in the left corner, we have no right opinion. Is that it? I don't know. I don't know right opinion? I don't know right opinion. No. No? No. No. What Jack White thing has no in it? How about... Uh, There's no right opinion for you here. Oh, 
Thank you, Google, for me searching white stripes. No. <laughs> yeah. In and- quotes. And uh, as always, thank you to Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help with our theme song. We're the third man, as well as Susanna Roundtree for the intro and outro of our program. And uh, Paul, where can we? Where can people find us? Uh, they can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thirdmen. You can find us on Twitter at thirdmencast. You can go to Tumblr, thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can go to our WordPress page where we host the show, thethirdmen.wordpress.com. You could check us out on our Spreaker page. That's the iHeartRadio page. That's Spreaker.com and search Third Men, S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. You can send us an email, thirdmenpodcast.gmail.com, or search us on YouTube, which Abe does a lot of awesome animation and visualizers and stuff for the show. And uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. That would be super swell. It would mean the world to us. Please do that. Just do that. Hey, just do it. Please. Look. Please. We don't ask you for much. We don't ask you for anything. So if you could just write a review, that'd be great. That's it. And to those who have, thank you very much. You put a big old smile on our faces. Yes. And uh, James, I think that's going to do it for us. Until next week, I will be searching for a home to invade by the British. Oh. Uh, And I will be (laughs) searching for an island next to Scotland, close to Ireland, to call home. All right, well, that... Uh, screw the Welsh. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. unadulterated podcast we didn't adulterate that at all Wait, didn't you say you you guys don't do a lot of research or something just before? That sounds well-researched to me. <laughs> we attempt. Yeah, we attempt. But anyway. That's pretty good. Oh, Nelson's know. weird brother, Christopher Mandela. I don't have a good Christopher Lloyd impression in my, in my pocket. It's, it's more of like a, oh, but it's not very good. That was good, Paul. More of that. <laughs> That's what I say. <laughs> so that is how slow we usually do it, and uh, it makes us look like fools to us. I'm with it. I like it. I like that. I, I'm going to tell Chris about that. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to send him that file. Like, this is how these guys do it. This, I think I smell it back to... The big two. The big two. Yeah, see, that was the other one. I had the big two. Maybe the big killed, two killed his baby. Maybe the big two's better. Anyway. 
so if I was a listener to our podcast and uh, we did nothing but talk about Beatles all the time, I would probably stop listening. So here's my suggestion, and I did a, <laughs> I did some quick research to do this. Sorry for the typing. Maybe you can edit that part out. Yeah. <laughs> just find this here. Uh, your audio volume is very low all of a sudden. Damn it, I blew it out. I can't hear a word you're saying. Can, can you really not? I can't. Uh, it's getting better. It's getting better. It's getting better all the time, Paul. It can't get much worse. Uh, That's, it's good now. Can you hear me? I can hear you. How about now? Uh, yeah, much better. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show.